0: Welcome to the All Creatures Podcast. This is Chris.
1: And I'm Angie.
0: And we're joined today with Rick Schwartz from the San Diego Zoo. Hey, Rick. Hey, everybody. How's it going? Oh, okay. Anybody that's listened to this podcast the last, what, 130 episodes, Angie, knows. I've beat it into the ground. The San Diego Zoo is my zoo. That is the zoo I grew up
1: It's your baby. Absolutely. I mean... Rightfully so. It's an amazing place to be.
0: Yes, and I've got many stories to tell. And share it's not you.
1: just the weather. It's not just the weather makes it perfect. It's <laughs> no. A lot it's, of things. And Rick Schwartz is definitely one of those things. Oh, thank you. <laughs> it's the San
0: Diego Zoo. I mean, come on. Since I was 6 years old, trekking those hills, looking at the animals and making me enthusiastic about what I do for the last <clears throat> few decades. So anytime we get to talk to anybody from the San Diego Zoo, you know I get super excited and, and I really get to dork out. So thank you, Rick, so much for joining us today.
2: You are very welcome. I appreciate you guys inviting me on. I'm very excited to do this.
0: Awesome. Well, thank you. And so we're just going to jump right into it. I know we have yeah, a list it. of questions and, you know, it may go off script as usual. Some of these things do, but Angie and I, you know, have been really looking forward to this one. And Rick, you know, as, you know, one of the spokespeople, for the San Diego Zoo. I guess it's always interesting to ask, you know, your background. Like for me, you know, this all began, like I said, when I was six years old, walking around the, the San Diego Zoo. So for you, when did all this begin? This interest in conservation
2: and wildlife? Uh, it, it stems from an innate, an innate um, just magnetism for animals. Uh, I, I cannot point to. Uh, aha moment, like some people can. I can't point to, a, oh, this happened, and so then I, etc. I don't remember a time where I was not constantly attracted to and gravitating towards animals. Um, uh, every childhood, uh, memory I may have, you know, we had dogs and cats, we had a tortoise. And I remember just always wanting to be around animals, go to a friend's house. I want to play with their pets, you know, go to a, a friend of the family's house. And like, oh, you got animals in the backyard. I'll, I'll be out there, you know? Um, so I don't, I, I don't ever remember not wanting to be around animals. And where I grew up in a, a small town in Eastern Washington state we didn't have a zoo, so whenever we would travel or come down to Southern California to visit family, it was like, we have to go to whatever, an, it was an aquarium, a zoo, I don't care. If we're at an amusement park of some sort or of somewhere that's got an animal show, we're going to go to that animal show. It, just, it had to happen. It, it honestly wasn't until I was in middle school that... Um, we were doing a family tour around Southern California to Los Angeles and San Diego area. And everywhere we'd go that had animals, uh, my aunt and my mother were asking the people who were working with animals, how did you get this job? Because this kid needs to do this when he grows up. <laughs> and I would say probably 80% of them said there's a school called Moore Park College. And, um, you, you know, most of us would go there. And so that was it. I came home from that trip in middle school. Went to the school counselor and said, "I need the address for Park College because I need to write to find out how you get to this program." And that 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 was really the the major like this is where we go and through the process of wanting to spend time with animals, falling in love with them. You know, growing up, there were not we didn't have the Nat Geo or Animal Planet. We we had the occasional Our documentary magazines. on I the uh,
1: magazines where you have, yeah. like little baseball cards. Of oh, animals. absolutely, we'd collect them all. Mm-hmm.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, the magazines, but, you know, either way, the the more I fell in love and learned about these animals, and I mean, literally, it could be a newt, it could be a a turtle, a tyke, the the more classic lions and zebras, whatever, you cannot fall in love and learn about these animals without understanding and learning what's going on in the wild. And so that's when it was like, oh my gosh, these animals that I'm so passionate about are in huge trouble. And so that's then put me more on the course of um, wanting to share with others and teach others that how amazing and cool are these animals, and guess what, right. they need your help. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so that that's sort of the condensed version of how you know sort of how I got on my course of, of initially starting off as a zookeeper and, and animal behaviorist, and then now finding myself as spokesperson for this wonderful organization. That's,
1: I mean, yeah. well, yeah. and
2: yeah.
1: well, Rick, we have a lot of people that listen to this podcast. Some are already zookeepers. But I know there's young budding zookeepers out there that need to know. How do you go from Moore Park or another accredited school to San Diego? Did you have stops along the way, or did you just? <laughs> I mean, it's it's the industry's a little different now. I know um, my husband and I always talk about. We're very lucky when we got in ten or fifteen or twenty years. I can't remember how long ago. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, it, 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 is, it is it has dude, changed dude. now a little bit, and so I, I just always love to hear people's advice or how they did what they did, and then if that's what the young next generation should do.
2: Yeah, I, certainly, you know. And I don't want to eat up the entire interview sure. or just how I got started because it is a long story. But after after Moorpark College, I bounced around uh, to different jobs mm-hmm. about every three to four years, which was just like. Terrifying for my family because that was, you know, early '90s. That still wasn't quite the thing you do. Now it's a much more commonplace thing to do to gain experience. You jump around different jobs every few years. Back then, that was like, "Wow!" But in in hindsight, you know, I'm I'm really glad I did that Mm -hmm. because I learned so much at each job I went to. Each one was a little bit different, and I learned from my very first job that what really resonates within me and my passion lies in reconnecting people to wildlife and and having those seeing those and being part of those aha moments with an animal ambassador um, to answer the questions, to then add to the information that they didn't know they didn't know and get them excited about conservation, et cetera. I, I learned that ah. on my path because of some jobs, gotcha. those, a couple jobs it was missing. And I was like, well, this doesn't resonate. And so I found that path, um, you know, but as far as to go from education to profession, um, yes, it's different now than it was when I first started my, my career path. The biggest thing I can tell any student or zookeeper who's in their first couple of years that wants to look at coming to the San Diego Zoo or, or just making a move to any zoo, really, if that's where your passion is and you feel that that is where you need to be, then one application sent and one gotcha. application mm-hmm. denied is just mm-hmm. simply a part of the process. It's not the end. It's not. So my personal story, Um, I had seven and a half years of professional experience. I had more park under my wings. Um, and I applied to the San Diego zoo thinking, ah, this is a a bird keeper position. I've worked several years with, you know, over a hundred and some odd different birds. I'm in Mm -hmm. no first application. Got a letter back saying, thanks for your interest, but no. Uh, and then just now hit repeat about five times uh different jobs throughout the organization I kept applying to and getting told nope, nope, nope. Finally on my sixth application, I got an interview. Felt the interview went very well, got a call back a little bit later. Hey, oh, great interview. We loved you. You're our second choice. Me. And the first choice is accepted the job. <laughs> so seventh go yeah, seventh go around I put in for a part-time keeper position. And at that point mm-hmm. in my life I was working a job that had a full-time guaranteed Benefits, good job, yes. and I, I was looking. One of the ways to get in sometimes is part time to work your way up through that way, and that's what I, I got. The part time position I started. landed yeah. in the children's uh-huh. zoo at that part time position as a part time keeper, about six. Yeah, and about about six months later, then a full time position opened up within the department, and I I was in love with the department. I mean, my gosh, it's it's uh, sixty different species of animals that are mammals, birds, and reptiles. We have families coming through every day. We're working with our public relations department, we work with our education department, we work with our development department. So, the big part of my job was you know working with those animals to get them front, comfortable in front of an audience, and then being in front of the audience to to basically get them engaged and excited and reconnected to that wildlife that that's kind of missing in our modern society.
1: Oh, it's
2: so that's, uh, that's kind of my story there. So, yeah.
1: So persistence. Yes. I love it. Persistence,
2: persistence and patience. Yeah. So I mm-hmm. always, I always tell students, uh, I work part-time at Moorpark also now uh, as an instructor, I always tell students and and anybody who who's in the business and, and ask me, you know, I do a lot of uh, social media as well. I always tell them, look, there's, it's three Ps. It's, it's persistence, it's patience, and it's professionalism mm-hmm. and just rinse and repeat all three because, um, you have to be patient with the system. In our, in our touch screen society, we are so used to immediate happenings. And that's, that's nothing wrong with that. But you have to understand sometimes in the process of hiring or working with through nonprofits or city run zoos, it takes time. Uh, that persistence means, you know, don't be annoying, but stay at it. Don't take, uh, one rejection letter as you're done. No more applying. And, and that professionalism is recognized that when you do get that letter, um, stay professional about it, follow up with it and move forward and keep, keep at it until you can fill all of their needs. So you are so valuable. You must be hired.
0: Right. No, I mean, tenacity, like you said, persistence and, you know, for any young listener out there wanting to work with animals or wanting to do research, you know, I know we have fans that are thinking about graduate school, you know, and I tell Angie's story how Angie was persistent and Banging oh, on my yes. office door. I,
1: yeah. I look back at the emails. I'm like, gosh, I, I was, I don't think I was annoying. I was, it was no. just that perfect line of like, no. Hey, I, I'm coming. I happen to be in Florida this week. Can yeah. you meet that? You yeah. Know, that kind of thing. Yeah. yeah. No.
0: And it's, it's yeah. yeah. You know, professionalism, things like that. So, you know, hearing Rick's story, the seventh time gets hired part time at the San Diego zoo. And now he's the animal ambassador. Like, come on. That is amazing. It's a made-for-movie. A- yeah. Yes. I know. That's awesome.
2: Yeah, and and, and honestly, too, you know, the, the internal story from, from the hire date of November 2000 to now um, as a keeper to transitioning to spokesperson and ambassador, um, if if you would have asked me the week before um, I was hired on to start being a spokesperson for the organization, like, you know, would you ever want to leave your current role as a keeper? I would have been like, no, I'm mm-hmm. retiring here. Mm-hmm. Because in that moment, I would have known that there's anything else out there of interest. I loved what I was doing. And even then, when I was brought in to be the spokesperson for a certain project, it was a temporary thing. I was supposed to go back to be a keeper. And so for me, it was like, yeah, I'll try it because if it doesn't work, I don't like it. I go back to my job anyways that I love. I'm good. You know, it, it was very, it was great. It was a very successful campaign. And then they asked me to come back and do it again temporarily for the following one, the following year. And then halfway through that campaign, asked me to stay permanently as a spokesperson for the entire mm-hmm. organization. And... It, so it was an evolution, even sure. in and of itself. You know, it wasn't like just someone said, "Hey, Rick, come do this now." Uh, and it was a fast process. That's where patience and professionalism had to come in to see where this would go. So it, it, everything's a well, process. Well,
0: with that being said, so as the animal ambassador and spokesperson, what what is kind of your role? If you can kind of tell our listeners what you get to ah. do, because you're <laughs> all over the place, <laughs> you're doing quite a bit. I am. Yeah. <laughs>
2: Yeah, I mean, um, it's hard to really just, you know, they, they always they always have an elevator pitch, what it is you do. And and for me, I think it, it sounds very broad and nondescript because it kind of has to be. My job and what I do is I reconnect people with wildlife. You know, in our modern society, I, I really, truly believe um, we have disconnected ourselves a bit. And it's no fault of our own. But there's an innate desire for us to be in nature and to be around animals. And 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 lots of people like oh I don't like dogs or I don't like whatever I see it every day even if someone doesn't like a snake and I have that snake out in the audience people might recoil a little bit if they don't like the snake but their interest to learn more is there they lean in to find out the facts I don't want to I don't (laughs) want to hear me you tell me all about it but I don't want to hear me you know that that is still there it exists and so my role is to is to reconnect so then the subtext to that sort of my personal mission. As the spokesperson for this organization, um, you know, I, uh, there might be a day where I'm sitting crisscross applesauce with a bunch of preschoolers and I'll have a hedgehog and we're talking about hedgehogs and what what it is that you think they do with their nose. Um, and then that same day or a different day in that week, I might be doing a keynote speech in front of a large group at a convention about how we work with children's hospitals in getting um, commercial free educational programming into the children's hospital to distract the kids and families from what's going on in their lives in that moment to maybe discussing in front of some PhD students uh, why we are choosing to actively uh, save the, the northern white rhino, even though there's only two non-breeding females left, and what does that look like in the science of it, and then everything in between. Or, uh, like earlier today, I was in the front of the zoo waiting for another crew to do an interview about our gorillas, and I was also <laughs> answering questions about uh, where the restrooms are. And so, um, you know, uh, I... I I feel I've been with the organization long enough that San Diego Zoo and also our, our sister facility, at San Diego Safari Park, they're my home. Uh, I truly feel that. And I try to always welcome people to my home when they're coming to interview me because I set sort of that sense of you're my guest. And this is where I live, and I'm going to take care of you. And I know the ins and outs. I know a lot of our staff for, for quite a long time. And, and so for me, it's really just about connecting people to what we do. We're, we are a wonderful zoo. You can come spend the day. Um, and just walking around and having a good time, but there's a lot more there, and I think we're going to talk about some of those things today. But um, it's my job to make sure people are aware of what we're doing and, and what what that is. And, and for for me with this organization, I'm very fortunate. That also includes uh, they send me all over the world. I, I've been to more countries than I ever dreamt I could have gone to on a zookeeper's salary because I'm being sent there for work. So uh, it's um, it's just a wonderful opportunity and. And for as much as it is a job, uh, it, it, I I still practice stepping back and looking at the the privilege I have to do what I do, and I have the experiences I have, and I'm in awe of it. Um, you know, I, I've got we do TV shows. They send me out on TV shows a lot too. Um, so yeah, it, it's just it's it's all encompassing and when you're in charge of telling the story of a, a large nonprofit yeah. organization and, like this and it do you get have to do a, like really a
1: favorite things. part or is it is it do you, or do you like the fact that oh one goodness. minute you can be talking oh. about where the bathrooms are <laughs> and then also telling about one of your conservation missions in a foreign country or the travel perhaps
2: um Yeah, I would, I I get this question often because it is such a unique position. People want to know what is your favorite part? And ah, it depends on the day, honestly. You know, I mean, there is, there are few things that can compare to being in a children's hospital and bringing animals in to that environment. Um, and, or we have the channel, the TV channel that we, we have in children's hospitals where they get a chance to watch that channel. And then I get to come in and interview these kids. Like, what did you think? What was it like? And to sit and talk, just talk with these kids about their favorite animals. And they, and I'm on this programming. So they see me on TV and now I'm sitting on their bed with them. You know, Yeah. those moments, I just absolutely, they'll make me cry. (laughs) I'm going to cry right now talking about it. Um, that. That you, and you can't knock me over for nothing, you know, for a week after something like that happens because it's just such an uplifting thing to go, you know, what, I'm just being me and I can bring that into these people's lives. Um, so that's, that's on the top list of favorites, but so is the quiet, peaceful mm. moments that I am with one of the animals I work with, that it's just me and them. And, you know, just having that depth of relationship with wildlife and animals that I have been so privileged to have... Um, it, it just, there's nothing that can compare to that. And the best I can say is that if, if you have a pet at home, a dog or a cat, and you feel that strong connection and, and there's just where you can look each other in the eye or whatever, and you just feel like you, you're understood, you know, um, and not to say these animals are pets, but that kind of connection is what I'm referring to. That is also, has always been one of my favorite moments where no matter what kind of day you're having, you just go hang out yeah. with one of your buddies and, yeah.
1: well, and you're just- good,
2: you know? So I, I'm just, oh, yeah. Uh, Go ahead.
1: Well, and I, that's what was so surprising for me when I worked at the children's zoo was getting that feeling with uh, reptiles and birds. I had always had it with mammals, anything with fur. Uh, mm-hmm. But yeah, to experience it with a snake or just things that I don't know, but it, it I, I had the ability to get that connection. No, I, mm-hmm.
2: you're onto something there. Yeah. And that's and that's something I think the general populace that does not work or spend time around these animals is surprised to hear, um, and those are the stories that I love telling. It's like actually no, this this snake here has a different um, affect; it has a different personality than the snake that I have over here coming out next. You know, and I know this because I've spent time with them, and you build those relationships with them. And and absolutely, reptiles, uh, birds, amphibians—they all have their own personalities and they yeah, click with certain people and, those click birds. With other people and it's <laughs> yeah. it, it really is awesome yeah, yeah right it really is yeah, awesome
0: you know and then listening to you talk it's like the i think the underlying theme is how people connect to to animals you know not just our domestic pets but wildlife so you know like we you know talked about opening up you know the impact of the zoo on me but when you're talking about going into a children's hospital and some of these illnesses are terminal or whatever, but people light up when you talk about wildlife or you show them, you know, a handable animal yeah. and say, Hey, look at this hedgehog. Like you were saying earlier, you know, something they've never seen before. And you mm-hmm. watch people just amazed, you know, whenever I'm at a zoo, yep, you know, wherever it is. And I watch people and the children and they're like, Oh, and their eyes are wide and mouths open. And, it's So wildlife, and that's why Angie and I love doing this podcast so much, because we, we hear it from people from all over the world, how they lo- they love to learn about all these different species. So with that being said, mm-hmm. and not to take the mood down.
2: But sorry. It's about to
1: get real. <laughs> Put on your seatbelt, folks. We're
0: losing it. I know, that's the thing. We're losing this biodiversity. I mean, right before our eyes. I mean, we're, we're, yeah. we're seeing them disappear. At an
1: alarming rate.
0: Yes. You know, like you said, Northern white rhino, there's two females left. It's, you know, Vaquita porpoise, all the ones that are, that are on their way out or almost on their way out. But luckily we have people like, like you, Rick fighting and, and being a spokesperson for that and, and others. So how do you see your role? You know, not only as spokesperson in the San Diego zoo or, or, or the wild animal park, but your role in educating the masses about this crisis.
2: Um, I think it goes back to what I had said earlier for my kind of my own personal mission and and a a quick job description. You know, it's it, we live in a time where it's easy to go from the one hot topic to the next. And, um, I think not too long ago, uh, there, there was just, I had heard about probably two weeks, maybe a week and a half before it became the Twitter topic of the day of of several days. It was the, the fires in the Amazon. And, Those fires are still burning.
1: Yes. Mm
2: -hmm. Um, but you can go on any social media platform and that topic is done. Yeah. It does not exist anymore. But in the moment, it was this cry of how can we not do anything? And I appreciate that passion. And I don't want to come off as if I'm saying we failed because we, it's still burning. Right. Uh, no, awareness is super important. And even if it is just a three day movement on social media, that's three days of awareness. That probably hooked some people into getting involved that wouldn't have known about it otherwise. Um, so I don't want to make it, I don't want it to sound like I'm saying this is, it was bad that it, it, it passed so quickly. My point being is that getting messages out to the masses, um, is about creating that moment on social media or in general of awareness. But then it's what you do with that once you have, uh, created that awareness and you have now created an audience who's like, I want to be involved. What can I do? It's the next steps after that, where my role is to find out who in the audience was the passionate ones and who want to join us in dealing with this. And then supporting that and not just saying, click on this to donate, but answer their questions, uh, address their concerns, um, discuss with them what they think they could do. uh, and, And essentially, not necessarily mentor, but build their abilities or make them aware of their abilities because they're already there in, in taking action and making a difference. Uh, I know in the audiences that I address, whether it's people wandering through the zoo uh, or it's the TV audience when I'm on Live with Kelly or, or, or whatever, whoever listens to this podcast, not everyone in that audience is going to join me in what I do and, and what I'm passionate about. But Uh, if I can get 10% of them, I'm happy as can be. If I can get one, I'll take it. Uh, because it, and, and I see the value in that there might be a kid who's all about frogs and there might be another kid who's all about, you know, tigers. I will tailor my discussion with them for what they're excited about because I don't want to try and convince them to do other things. I want them to follow their passion because that's when they'll make a difference is they're passionate about already, so let's feed that and get it going. And, and um, that's where my role kind of falls into that, I think.
1: And in your opinion, in the past couple of years, do you think the masses are starting to pay attention? There does seem to be, as you mentioned, some momentum on certain topics in social media, or at least it seems that way. But how, what is your take on that? Are people starting to pay more attention than they did, say, five years ago?
2: Absolutely. Absolutely, no doubt in my mind that the audience uh, has been reached and is growing. Um, sure, there's misinformation out there, but I, I started in this role as spokesperson for this organization uh, temporarily in 2009, full-time 2010, and so let's look at a quick snapshot of social media at that time. Uh, Facebook was still kind of getting itself figured out. Mm-hmm. Twitter had been around, but nobody really knew what to do with it. Um, everyone was kind of there looking at each other, you know, <laughs> awkward, you know, sort of cocktail party. Um, and that was really it. MySpace was on the way out. Um oh, good old you MySpace. Know, Instagram didn't even exist yet, <laughs> yeah. right? And so when at that time, the way we would reach an audience is we'd go on radio and television mm-hmm. shows. We would do print interviews. And we still do that, don't get me wrong. But there was no opportunity for audience feedback. Um, where in social media now, as social media grew, I could see that there's an opportunity for that feedback, for that discussion, for that concert, uh, conversation about conservation. And so I can say that um, from the very first time we promoted uh, anti-poaching for elephants to the most recent time, huge difference in the size of the audience that participates. The funds that are being raised uh, for anti-poaching units is higher than it's ever been. Uh, we, have, we see celebrities now who might have been like, oh yeah, I love animals, now are volunteering to be the face or spokesperson for PSA, uh, you know, Yao Ming, the, um, the basketball player, if I said his name right, I I hope, um, you know, he did a whole campaign in China, anti-poaching campaign in China about rhinos and and ivory, and that was huge, because he is a huge star there, and now, as someone they look up to, as a, as a true influencer, um, you know, he made a difference. There was actual data that backed up that after that campaign ran, uh, purchasing of those items dropped significantly in certain demographics as far Huge. as age groups, which was yeah, basically yeah. his audience. Yeah. And so that's really a – that that to me tells me yes. Um, you know, an example I use sometimes is the straws, uh, the whole straw thing. Forever plastic has been an issue. Forever straws have been single-use, tossed in the trash, pain in the butt as far as any conservation is concerned – and then there was this big uprising to get rid of them. And then you had, well, what's once you get rid of straws going to do? You still have, look, there's plastic here. There's plastic bags. And it's like, yeah, you're right. right. Mm-hmm. So let's look at those next. You know, it's, it's one, one step at a time yeah. is how yeah. we're going to get this done. Um, and, and yes. So short answer, yes, right. there's, there's been Absolutely. a big difference and it's improving.
0: No, that's, that's amazing. And you're right. I, you know, I think we feel it. We feel that there's, especially the younger generation, the generation that, that you're out there. You know, reaching, and I know some of the the older generation. I got to tip my hat to them too. You know, leading some of these efforts and conservation and and policing ourselves and the trash, uh, things like that. yeah I'm um, switching gears a little bit. Really want to talk more about you know mm-hmm. San Diego Zoo Global, what they're doing out there, because I think a lot of people don't really understand what zoos are doing in the field. And, you know, we did get to interview your Mm -hmm. koala team a few months back, and it was amazing talking to them how San Diego sends them to Australia, you know, to actually go in the field and work with these animals and work in their active conservation. So I really want to talk a lot about that today if we can, too. So I don't know if you can address kind of what the overall mission is of the zoo and wildlife park and then kind of some more of the popular... Conservation efforts that the San Diego. yeah,
2: that's doing. that's actually pretty easy, but also challenging. So um, we we have a full blown mission statement. Um, essentially, it, it talks at length about you know getting people involved with the conservation we're doing around the world. You know, the name San Diego Zoo Global is because we are a global nonprofit organization. Uh, our um, our vision is easier to kind of put across there, and is quite simply put: it's to end extinction, and that's it. And and you can look at that and go, yeah, right, you're going to end extinction. Underneath that, we are looking to end extinction one species at a time. We recognize we can't do it all at one time, uh, but we are going to target our efforts very specifically. And as soon as we feel we've gotten to the point that we have done what we can or the project can be passed on to someone else who can keep it going, we will target another species. Um, it's that simple. We're ending extinction. Uh, we are currently located in over... Um, well, I think we have over 100 projects around the world that we're working actively on. Uh, and that's, it represents about f- a little over 40 countries where that's happening. That also includes projects right here in San Diego County. Uh, we have plenty of endangered species due to our coastal, uh, and desert areas that we are actively doing release programs on and, you know, you know, radio or, or GPS tracking on and, and things like that. So, The, the amount of species, the amount of locations around the world is kind of mind boggling for some people because like, wow, I just thought this was a zoo, you know, and, and our, our efforts and our work go well beyond uh, the zoo perimeter. Yes, you're welcome to come and have a good time, uh, but recognize that we're doing a lot more than just letting you come and have a good time and learn about animals.
1: Well, and you actually touch on a, a really important point and I'd love to get your opinion on it. Do you think the public in general, uh, so, Probably maybe not a lot of people listen to this podcast, but we got to get the message <laughs> out there. But do you think the public in general understands what accredited zoos, like, like San Diego Zoo Global, what they do for animals and conservation?
2: It is. Uh, this comes from my personal experience. The answer is no. Um, my personal experience is usually when you have an opportunity to briefly tell someone the extracurricular activities we have outside of running a zoo and a safari park, um, people are, are dumbfounded. They have no idea. And a lot of that does not come from us, um, ignoring, uh, the need to tell people, uh, we are always banging that drum. Uh, it is more challenging to get that voice or that message out there in a world that is filled with so much information in general that is, uh, you know, it, Honestly, we send out press releases all the time I about what we're them. doing, um, but <laughs> it's usually not. Yeah, and I appreciate it, um but it's honestly not until maybe a baby giraffe happens that it gets picked up by the news. You know, so we're sending out those press releases, uh, but the general public isn't going to see it in the media uh, if the media decides it's not a story that's going to gain traction for them. And that's the nature of of running a media company. I get it. I'm not complaining. I'm just saying that. Uh, we try to let people know what we do, but in general, I think most people are surprised, A, that we're a nonprofit organization. We always have been. And then B, that we do millions upon millions of dollars worth of work beyond uh, keeping a functioning zoo.
1: Well, and then Rick, to follow up with that, because it's just so interesting to me and it's something I'm very passionate about. And Chris and I both with this podcast, it's one of our missions to help tell the story about what zoos do behind the scenes um, and in front of the scenes, of course, as well. So if there was all the money in the world or if you could have it your way, what could we do to change that to help educate more people about zoos and their conservation mission and that going to your local Credit Zoo Act and spending your money there actually can help animals in the wild. What, what could be done or how, what else can Chris and I do or any of our listeners out there?
2: You know, I, I think in the, I think the realistic answer that, that what can be done now is more important than addressing what could be done if, if we had all this money to do something. Um, I think telling the stories. Doing podcasts like this, um, sharing on social media. One of the big things I get pushed back on, cause I do a lot on Twitter and Instagram and Facebook and I get every now and then I get a naysayer that says, Oh, yeah, cause posting about it here on social media is going to make a difference for rhinos. And I'm like, well, let's have that discussion, uh, because it will. Because if I have enlightened of the X amount of people that follow me, if, if 20 of them share what I posted and or read it and then want to tell others about it, um, that's an amplification. And we know for a fact, especially in conservation, especially when you have to work with other people in conservation that aren't necessarily conservationists, awareness drives change. Uh, It is a huge factor. And so it's a matter of finding different avenues to tell the stories. And to. that's why I love social media so much is that it's an opportunity unfiltered. There's no producer or or director or programming director saying, yeah, it's not really good enough news. I'm getting it out there and my audience responds and they share it with their audience, whether it's, you know, just, and Josephine, right, you know, he follows exactly, him on Facebook. Yeah. Maybe Aunt mm-hmm. Josephine had no idea rhinos were going to go extinct. And now she's more apt to, to do something about it. And um, it, it's just, you know, and if money, if there was a ton of money, then I would say we'd go out and buy tons of space on social media to broadcast it even further. We would create curriculum that goes into high schools, um, because I think it's where we lose a lot of our general audience as a zoological facility and, and zoos in general. We, we have, uh, families that bring little ones in. We have elementary schools that come and do field trips and then they get to high school and they, we, they're gone until they have their own kids and they come back. And I hear all the time, oh, I haven't been here since I was, uh, in sixth grade, you know? And, um, and that would be where I would spend a large chunk of money is creating curriculum and programs in high schools that are specifically about <laughs> conservation and zoos and the work yes, that they I do. Yes, I love that's-
1: it. Thank you.
0: Yeah,
2: no, that's not, I mean, that is the audience,
0: right? Like, you know, you talk to these teenagers and I've, I've been doing it the past year. Uh, you know, shout out to Ari and her friends. And I'm like, so what do you guys think? You know, are you, are you even aware of what's going on out there? And they have no clue, you know, and, and I did see TikTok right. the other day. That's like the new one and you had the giraffe, you know, that was great. Yep. Yeah.
2: I'm doing it. Yeah. Because it's where the eyeballs are. I'm, you know, I, I don't think I've got, um, I don't think I've got, I don't have the right recipe for TikTok. It's a different
0: platform.
2: Because I come, it is, it is a different platform. But I tell you what though, I'm going to be there. And even if it's just one video or one clip that, that takes off there to get people to go, Oh, Mm -hmm. that's funny or that's good. And then if I get, you know, one person that clicks over to my profile and says, who is this guy? And then all of a sudden they're like, Oh, this is cool. I had no idea. That's a win. And so yeah, I will, you will always find me wherever the eyeballs are because that's where I need to be to tell my message to make sure it's being seen. Otherwise, why shout down an empty can? And
0: and I know we have them. I think Gavin up in Canada, you know, he's a, he's a high school, uh, guy that just emailed Angie and I the other day. So, I mean, they're, they're out there, but you're right. That, that generation, you know, once they get to that age and they start doing other things and it's like, it's important to educate them and get them excited about conservation.
2: Absolutely. And it's, and it's no fault of their own. It's our responsibility to reach them because it's the, it's the, you know, one thing as a communicator I always talk about in class is that you have to understand your audience so you can meet them where they are. And if we are going to keep doing the same style of messaging and expect people as they mature and change and their lifestyles change to stay there, stick around for where our old school messaging is, we're sadly mistaken as communicators. We have to meet them where they are. We have to adjust for the teenage years. We have to adjust for the early college years and understand what they're going through in life and where their priorities are. So we reach them at the right time, at the right place with messaging and not try to get them to accept what we've been saying when they were in elementary school because it doesn't work. Well, I
0: think one of the things I really wanted to,
2: to bring up too, or
0: some of the lesser known conservation efforts. And I know we're going to jump into the the zoo show that you had on animal planet, but one of the episodes was re-releasing burrowing owls. You know, it was, it was one of the species we covered, um, uh, I don't know, like 30 or more like 50 pods ago, but I was really surprised. And I was like, Oh, and there's San Diego releasing them back in the wild. So are there some of those other lesser known species? I know there are, but that people, you know, should be, or maybe just, aren't aware of that, that you're, you're fighting hard to, like you said, end extinction for them.
2: Yeah, absolutely. You know, our, our quick compare and contrast, our white rhino project has gotten a lot of news as it should, because it's incredibly unique and special and huge. Um, and it's a megafauna, so it's a very obvious species. But to your point, the burling owl, uh, the mountain yellow legged frog is another one of our projects. Um, and there are countless other small, uh, you know, Oh, gosh, even butterfly projects, honestly, that that are here in San Diego or that other zoos are working on um, that are no less amazing and impressive in the science behind it, the work, the amount of hours going into it. But you try and put that in front of the media, like, it's a butterfly. I see those in my backyard. <laughs> you know, it's or it's a frog. I, I see those, you know, down by the creek where I go fishing. Um, so, it, unfortunately... Perception isn't quite there on how important these projects are, but yes, to your point, there are, are hundreds of other conservation projects. You know, I've got some friends in the, um, Hogel Zoo in Utah, and they've got a great project up there, uh, with some toads they're working on. And, you know, our staff with the Mountain Yellow Legged Frog, uh, the Burrowing Owl Project, uh, mm. there's a uh, Pacific Pocket Mice. These guys are no bigger than those pink pencil yeah, erasers yeah. that used to use in elementary school you know, um, and they get the name pocket mouse not because they're small and fit in your pocket, which is what I honestly thought when I first heard about it. They have these dry pockets. It's not actually in the mouth, dry pockets on the side of the mouth where they stash grass seed, which is what they live off of. And of course, if the grass seed got moist, it would get ruined. So those dry pockets, you know, and we have a whole project where not only are we are, we studied the heck out of them and their breeding rituals and their mating behavior. Um, and now we're, we're, we're making more and then we're doing release programs along the California coast. um, you know, all these projects, just truly fascinating and, and the list can go on and on. There, there's, there's countless ones, uh, that are, are lesser known than some of the megafauna we work with as well.
1: And do you want to highlight, yeah. Yeah. uh, the Northern White Rhino Project or any other major ones going on for some of our listeners out there?
2: Well, certainly, um, I think, you know, we, we have, uh, you know, three come to mind. They're probably the most famous, obviously the California condor. Uh, when I was, um, I remember still to this day, clear as a bell, the cover of the national geographic, um, magazine that came out when the last ones were brought in from the wild, there were 22 left in the eighties. And that, uh, that, that is just seared into my brain, the cover of that magazine and what it, what it represented and what the story inside. And, um, when I was going through college then and, and came to visit the what was then called the Wild Animal Park, now the Safari Park, uh there was, you know, you could buy these shirts that said Crest, which was I think uh, Center for Reproduction of Endangered Species. And there's a big condor across it, you know, and that was really the 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 famous one. And and the science behind taking twenty two condors, they didn't just like take twenty two and say, Okay, hey, here's a boy, she's a girl start making more. There was a full DNA study done on the entire collection, who's related to whom, what, how many generations are they apart, all of the things. And, and now, of course, the other side of it, there's over, you know, 400 of them in the population, half of that flying free in the wild. And, um, you know, the, the next big one for us was, was giant pandas. And that forty years of, of giant panda, twenty some odd years of giant panda research, forty years total of conservation. Now they're off the endangered species list. You know, so uh, it's just one thing after another. And now we're looking at the, the northern white rhino. Um, I was so so dang lucky. Uh, I was got to go to Kenya. I got wow. to meet all three of them uh, before mm-hmm. the male passed away. Um, I was in it was such a
1: oh, a blender
2: full imagine. of emotions to go <laughs> out there to Opejida, and know that I'm looking at the last three of that kind, but also to be so excited to be there to see the last three of that kind. It was just, yeah. it was such a weird moment. And it was. I remember we got there right before sunset. It was just so dramatic and it was just beautiful. Um, you know, and our organization, we have what's called the Frozen Zoo. And there's over a thousand species represented in the Frozen Zoo. This is a cryogenically frozen bank of cells. And in there we have the representation, I believe, I want to say it's either, I don't know why my brain does this, it's either 12 or 18. Either way, it's less than 20 individuals uh, represented of the northern white rhino. And we have skin cells, we have hair cells, we have some, you know, other reproductive cells, uh, different tissue samples, um, but we don't have the complete package to put them together in vitro and say, make a baby. Uh, so we're looking at the science of stem cells to make that happen and the pro, and the, and so while our scientists are working on that in the lab uh we uh in the field we have six females that were of southern white rhinos so for those who don't know the northern white rhino and southern white rhino are incredibly close but different enough to be considered uh, uh subspecies and we know that through dna s- uh, studies that have been done they, they mapped out the whole thing like okay there's enough of a difference so we know that if we impregnated a southern white rhino we would have Half and half. It wouldn't be, if we impregnated them, I'm sorry, with a uh, with the semen from a northern white rhino, you'd have then a hybridization. So, what we're doing with the southern white rhino, these females, we're mapping out the reproductive system, which has never been done in the species. It's not as easy as people think. Oh, um, I know. I've know, ultrasounded them
1: before. It's, it's, it's okay. It's so, a, yeah, so you know, it's a workout. So,
2: yeah, it not only work out, it's just that um, it's such a unique uh mm-hmm. uterus the it's such a unique track animals. and way the mm-hmm. ovaries yeah it's just um i mean i love biology and animals but to listen to our, our reproductive uh, physiologists and scientists that do this work i'm just blown away um so long and the short of it because it a, it's a long story what this is our pa- our plan is we are making sure these females are reproductively mm-hmm. viable we are using southern white rhino male semen to impregnate to make sure their body goes through the cycle properly, and to make sure we understand the hormone cycle of when they're ready to receive. Then, once that science is perfected, once we have that all figured out, uh, we will then create in vitro or, or in the test tube a southern white uh, from an egg and a sperm. We'll create that uh, embryo, and that embryo will be planted then into a surrogate female unrelated so the goal is to, to perfect the surrogate program through Southern White Rhinos. Once that's perfected, then we'll take the very precious and rare tissue that we do have of the northern white rhinos. We will make the sperm and the egg, we will make that uh, embryo of a true northern white rhino from that gel the, the cell lines and that genetics, and that will then be put into a southern white rhino female as a surrogate. So when that baby's born, it's a true northern white rhino. And that is our goal. And that is the science we are currently it's doing at this flywheel.
1: So incredible. Right. So exciting.
0: Yeah. And that's stuff like, you know, Angie and I studied back in our academic days. And, you know, some of Angie's work with with the Southern White Rhino. It, it It's worth saying, too, for people, that's the last ditch effort to save a species. That's not our goal. You know, what San no. Diego Zoo does is try to maintain, like, like Rick was talking about, the condors. You know, keeping a viable population under human care, grow it, and then re-release them. Like you said, you know the the Przewalski horse, black-footed ferret, California condor, bison. We yep. can keep going on and on and on. Yeah. So, but also, you know, you're talking about the the science fiction stuff is still going on behind the scenes but, that a lot. Yeah, of people well, it's just know, really so progressive it's really fun it, to talk about, mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. hopefully bringing a species back yeah yeah
2: and it's not science fiction anymore no it's not (laughs) it was five years ago but no it's real i have uh i've seen some amazing things and what they're doing there what they're perfecting and it just it's it's mind-blowing and i give talks quite often about this project and sometimes i get questions back it's like why in the world would any organization think it's a good idea to spend that much money and time when there's only two left You know, they're probably going to go extinct. If this program doesn't work, they're done and you've just dumped millions of dollars into it. And, and, uh, the simple answer to that is then tell me when, when is the right time? When there's, when there's a hundred left, when there's 500 left, because guess what? There's rhino species out there that only have a hundred left. There's some that have only 400 and some left. Right. And, and so the, our vision on this is we start here. And this process will help us also dramatically understand the other rhino species and we can perfect the process for them as well. And even if it does not result in saving the species, the amount of information we will have found out about this process will be completely uh, applicable and something that we can build on then for the other species.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And obviously as scientists, we know that, I mean, um, my running saying is it's not called search, it's called research research. Cause you have to mm-hmm. keep redoing it to get better at it. And, and a lot of times one answer, you end up having four more questions, but you, you need to do it in order, as yeah. you mentioned, to, to get it down. And, and if gosh forbid the northern whites can't be saved, we have all of this, all of these steps forward in case we need them
2: for another species. And right. Exactly. And and it, we can even point to the southern white rhino. You know, it wasn't that long ago the northern white rhino was still roaming free in the northern portions of Africa. And then we all woke up one day and said, hey, there's no more left. And the only ones left were in zoos. And that happened uh, rapidly due to aggressive poaching. We could see that happen with what we think is a safe population of, of southern white rhinos too. So, again, the path we're on for this is focused on the northern white rhino, but does not mean it won't be very important for the species mm-hmm. in the near future.
0: No, right. I mean, it's a great point. And I I think that kind of leads into the next topic we're going to kind of talk about is how important accredited zoos like San Diego Zoo Global are to conservation. And and talking about that high school population just a month ago, I had a pretty lengthy uh, survey that a a high school student sent me and he was, I'm going to write a paper and I'm trying to figure out why zoos matter. I think they should go away. And it really had some really well thought out questions. And so I, I took the time, it took me about an hour and I really took the time to write it out and write my responses on why I feel my opinion and, and it's a learned opinion, you know, being involved in research and science, why zoos matter. And he wrote back and he's like, wow, I was going to write this against zoos, but I completely changed his mind completely. So from your perspective and, and you know, your experience doing this the last couple decades, how important are zoos to conservation? And then again, how important is San Diego Zoo global to conservation? I think we've been leading up to this. It's kind of an easy question but, or answer, but I wanted to get your take on that.
2: <laughs> yeah, I think, um, you know, between us, probably between your listeners and most of my fans, it is a simple answer. Yes, zoos are important to conservation. Um, but I think anybody who's paying attention knows the average zoo person or zoo guest is coming to the zoo to have a nice day, see some animals, spend some time with family or on their own or on a date. Uh, in fact, a friend of mine who works for, uh, um, a company that works with a lot of museums, they ran a study a few years back and they, they polled people as they were uh, leaving, asking them why they came to the museum that day. And, uh, it was about, um, Seventy-five percent said they're coming there to have a good time, something to do for the day, something interesting. And about twenty-five percent were, well, we're here to learn something. We thought it'd be good to see this and learn about that, or I have a report for school. Um, Then you do the same poll to the uh, employees, asking why do guests come, and seventy-five percent they're here to learn something, and about twenty-five percent, well, they're here to just have a, a good time. There's a disconnect there obviously. And I mm-hmm. I, I bring that up because it's a study that I'm aware of about museums. I believe it's a similar situation for zoos as well. I believe the general population shows up to enjoy themselves. Um and then they leave from our exit polls having learned something. We have a lot of exit polls that we do to see if we're if our message is reaching our audience on grounds. And um yeah, most people are surprised to hear about Uh, The level of challenges wildlife in general faces today. Um, there's a lot of noise out there in, in media and not everybody is on social media following a zoo or a conservation organization. Um, and the other part of it is we can't just constantly beat them over the head with the challenges the wildlife face because it can be very overwhelming and depressing. Uh, Emotional burnout is a real thing in our field. (laughs) And because it can be very challenging and overwhelming and uh so zoos are important to to raise that awareness uh it is our responsibility to raise that awareness the the role that zoos play in conservation is huge and it's it's hard for us to get that message out because a lot of times media does not want to pick it up that's why podcasts like this are are so important because you guys are covering stories you know, like you mentioned you know the black-footed uh, ferret and uh, you know burrowing owls and Vaquita, most places you go in America, if you say Vaquita, people are like <laughs> Is that a taco? What? Yeah. <laughs> they don't they have they don't even know what it is. And and to no fault for those to those who are, are trying so desperately to do something about their their impending extinction. Um it, it's it's just a matter of there's so much going on out there and, and the, the role zoos play, we also look at it as it's our responsibility to um, to share sort of the respect and we have for animals and the honor that we have to spend time with them. And so our hope is that perhaps when the family's out camping or even out for down at the beach, uh, to spend the day there, the thought process behind your conduct in that space, as far as what you leave behind or don't leave behind, or when you see wildlife, to respectfully watch it from a distance. Um, you know, things of that nature are important as well. It's not just this foreign country far away that has these exotic Mm -hmm. striped animals. It's what's in your own backyard. What's in, it's whatever's, whatever's downstream, um, is just as important. And, and zoos teach that lesson as well.
1: And then Rick, what do you think is going to be the role that zoos will play in the future? Or what, what are the changes in the industry and how are they being reflected in the zoo?
2: I think um it's pretty easy to to look back and and point to what zoos were in the early 1900s. Um you mm-hmm, know, you mm-hmm. look back in the history of zoos right. there's always been some level of conservation in there oddly enough. I don't think a lot of people know that, but uh, as humans we've we've always cared about animals. Mm-hmm. Uh yes, we're also very curious and so sometimes it's a matter of showing up to just look at them. Um and I think there was a time you can look at in the early 1900s that zoos were a place to come look at animals. Uh, and now uh, the modern zoo is a place where you come to learn about them. And the modern zoo is the place where conservation starts. Um, we do a lot of fundraising in our organization, and we know very well that the charismatic animals get attention. Charismatic animals are the ones that are going to get people interested in in sharing the funds they have made that they don't need for living that they can share with us so we can, you know, do our work. Um, And we were trying to fundraise. Our children's is currently under um, construction. It's a big dirt pile with a bunch of tractors right now. It looks like a giant play yard. Um, And they were, it was brought up in one of uh, the the Mm -hmm, meetings I attended mm -hmm. that it's really hard to fundraise for a location. And not fundraise for elephants or for rhinos and and I I I spoke up Mm -hmm. I said then where our message is wrong because having worked in the children's zoo I can tell you that's where conservation starts yes Um, children's zoo is where that aha moment happens for so many people so many scientists conservationists or people in the zoo world say oh I remember I was at the sea lion show and this happened or I remember I was at my local zoo and this happened and they have that aha moment. I have seen that aha moment so many times as a children's zoo keeper, where where a child uh, where a child has that moment for the first time that they think the animal looked at them. Sure, or the animal did or not doesn't yeah. matter. It's that oh, yeah, look right at me. It yeah. swam by and looked at me, whatever. And and they feel mm-hmm. that connection for the first time. That's yep. where conservation starts, right there in the children's zoo. And that person could be the next. Whomever that does whatever, whether they they're keeper, whether they're Jane, yeah, right, exactly, and and so for me, the the modern zoo, there is no disconnect between zoology, zookeepers, zoo work, and conservation. Conservation and zoology have have become, or I should say, conservation and zoos, the modern zoo, have become so intertwined that at this point I don't believe one will happen without the other successfully.
0: You know, it's so true. And when we, uh, back when we talked to Corbin Maxey, we did an episode on why zoos matter. And and I was telling the story as a young kid at the San Diego zoo walking. And I believe it was by the, the old gorilla exhibit. And it was like things that come from the rainforest and, you know, here's Mm -hmm. all of this stuff that we get from the rainforest. And by the way, the rainforest is going away in the Amazon, and this is back last century. You know, we'll not go back to, you know, do the math. But
2: <laughs> before we redid uh, the the center portion, yes, of, yes, we called the heart of I the would, zoo. You know, I know what you're talking as about. As
0: a child or as a young adult, I think it was yeah, I was around 10 years old. That stuck with me, and that stuck with me since. And here I am today, mm-hmm. reaching tens of thousands of people around the world, talking conservation. So you're right. You don't know who you're impacting when they walk by and see that signage or or see your social media posts, things like that. And that's why, you know, parents listening, take your kids. It makes a huge impact on them. You know, shout out to Quinn. There's another of our listeners that I know. This this podcast particularly has had a positive effect on that young woman's life. So switching gears again, I know we've been dying to talk about this one, and that is the zoo show that's been on Animal Planet. Yeah, it was amazing, oh, yeah. fun to watch.
1: Well, yeah, it's a good, a good lead into the impact. Yeah. Talk about yeah. making impact, yeah. millions.
0: I mean, millions of viewers that get to watch that show, and and I thought it was really well done. You know, talking about the conservation message, the the heartbreak, you know, of animals passing away. You know, the male lion. God, I, I get chills just thinking about that scene. I was just like those poor keepers, and and oh, um. So I guess the, the big question is, how did that go for the for San Diego Zoo Global?
2: Um, it was amazing. It was awesome. It was terrifying. It was a bigger bite of apple than we thought we took. Um, and it was a lot of what we expected. You know, our organization, uh, we work a lot with TV production companies, but mostly on a media level. So in my time here, in my experience here, we have not hosted a full-blown TV production like that. We have hosted, say, the Today Show and Al Roker for two days for a five-minute bit for the following week. You know, um, We've hosted a travel channel thing or a weather channel thing where they're on grounds all day and we work with them all day or maybe two days. We've never had, in my time, again, I started in 2000, um, we have not hosted a production company of this size. So we had a team of... Six or seven on the production company side at the Safari Park. At the same time, we had a team of the same size at the zoo. And we shot Monday through Friday, 10 hour days or more, um, all weather, um, January through May. And it was a lot. It was a lot of work. And my biggest concern when my chief marketing officer came to me and said, I want to put you in charge of this project. What do you think? Um, my first thought was, how is this going to impact my keepers? Um, because having been a keeper for so long, I know they have oh, a yes. full day and then some, and I know they have a, uh, yeah. they're right. And their passion and their responsibility is to their animals. How is this going to impact their day? What are we going to do about that impact? And then when I went around all the different departments, um, multiple department, well, all the, almost all of the departments, I told them, you know, my biggest concern is how this is going to impact your team's and your work. So please speak up or tell me. And then every day of, sh- of production, every team we came in contact with multiple teams per day is how are we doing yeah. on time? How is your day? What can we, you know, because I, at the end of it, what I wanted to see, and it's completely selfish, uh, just again, I wanted at the end of this project for our team's to look back on that and go, wow, that was really cool. I hope they come back for season two. Sure,
1: yeah. Instead yeah. of,
2: I'm so glad this is over. <laughs> yes, <laughs> you know, and that and it could go either way. It really because it's a large. You have a large crew of people coming in and changing your day. You know, uh, and 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 for as much as you saw on TV, you were watching with commercials about 46 minutes of television per episode. There were eight episodes, or nine, maybe nine episodes, mm-hmm. and we filmed for months. 10 hour days, Monday through Friday. You can imagine how much work we put into this to make that TV show. And, um, so I was, I was very concerned about how our staff would be impacted. And I'm happy to report back to the end this far out. Now we film, finished filming in May, the, the seasons run through, and everyone is, is thrilled with it. And, and that's really where my concern was. The other concern, of course, uh, was making sure our stories were, were being told. Making sure that the conservation made it in there. Because a lot of times TV shows, they want what's going to make for good TV. And sometimes conservation doesn't make right. for good TV. Mm-hmm. That's we know that because a lot of times our stories don't get picked mm-hmm. up in the media. So uh, for us it was how can we make sure the production company gets what they need for a good TV show uh, and still get our stories out there? And I think it's a, I think they did a great job. I think it was a wonderful blend of you know, the burrowing owl story and um, the passion our keepers have and, and taking care of an individual animal up until their last days or taking care of a youngster who had a rough start and everything in between. Um, you know, I, I was there for filming. I saw the rough cuts. <laughs> I saw the final cuts. And I still enjoyed watching it on TV with my family. So, you know, it, 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 they did a great job. And I, I really, hats off to the production team, hats off to Animal Planet for putting this as their spotlight uh, programming now. I mean, the zoo of mm-hmm. the Bronx is four seasons in now, I think. Um, the aquarium at, at Georgia Aquarium did a season. I, they announced their season two's coming up. We're going to be filmed soon. Uh, the Irwins, uh, basically, it's, it's all the same kind of general format, but it's the unique stories of these facilities. And the beauty of this program is it does do what we talked about earlier, which was it starts to crack into that uh, public that zoos are more than just a place to go and enjoy the animals. This is all the amazing yes. work going on behind the scenes. You oh, have no, no, no idea unless you not, work there.
0: Yeah. On exhibit, right, that are involved in conservation programs, the condors. Yeah. The, that baby cassowary. The
2: condor program. I know. We have that have the never been allowed to be up there. <laughs> I was like,
0: oh, my gosh. I just <laughs> the, yeah. the Moving around. It, it was an amazing program. It was an amazing program.
1: Well, Rick, I have to ask, I'm dying to know, will there be a season two of the zoo show on Animal Planet?
2: We're dying to know, too. Um,
1: <laughs> Fair enough.
2: Right, right. So uh, right now, all the signs are pointing to there probably will be, but there's still a lot of higher level business stuff that's, that's being oh, tended imagine. to. Yeah. So we have not heard officially if they're going to call for a season two or not. Um, we are prepared for it, and we are hopeful, which is makes me happy because that means we did right by our staff internally yes. uh, the first go around. Mm-hmm, so we're mm-hmm. we're just waiting. I mean, I don't know. Maybe by the time this airs, there'll be an announcement. But as of right now, nothing official. Okay,
1: well, we're crossing our fingers for you, and definitely we'll be watching, and of course, uh on our show notes, we'll put up links and make sure that everybody listening is fully aware of the Zoo Show on Animal Planet, and check out past episodes if you haven't, and actually yeah, yeah. look forward to some new ones. We'll
2: see. I hope so. Mm-hmm.
0: And so with, with that being said, Rick, you too, you do get to go on some of these, uh, other shows. Like you said, the morning shows and the late night shows, you got to read Ron, Ron Burgundy. I watched that live. That was awesome. <laughs> I watched that, <laughs> that too. <was> that
1: amazing. <laughs> oh my gosh. It was yeah. so fun.
0: <laughs> so, but you know, doing these shows and, and you know, we, we've talked to Corbin Maxey and, and some others. Do you feel like you, you're able to get some sort of your conservation message out there?
2: Well, it depends how they edit. <laughs> so, I, we'll take the, we'll take the, so, a lot of these shows are live. And animals are the feel good, so we're usually pushed to the very end of the show. And we're told sometimes at the top of the show, oh, you'll have nine minutes. And then by the time the live shows run through, you might be down to four. Mm-hmm. And the producers want as many animals on as possible. And we have to try and, we have to find an, a, a point of, um where we are not challenging what we can do safely with the animals, um, but also give the producers as much of what they want so we get Content, them the back. Sure. Mm-hmm. And the, yeah, so it's a, it's this delicate ongoing negotiation and dance when it comes to these live shows. And, um, you know, getting your conservation message out doesn't always happen in full, mm-hmm. but even if... You know, and I I train people on this when we talk about media training. Even if when I first walk on with an African penguin and they're like, oh, it's so cute, look at that, it's like it's wearing a tuxedo. (laughs) You know, the first thing out of my mouth, I'll just make up a name. You know, this is Betty, our African penguin. And the reason we're here is because this is a critically endangered species that zoos are working together in South Africa to create safe nesting areas for them. And, you know, and maybe a few other quick facts, because I know I'm going to interrupt real quick about. It just pooped, or something else happened, or it smells like fish, you know, because that's that's what they want for content is that fun sort of thing that their audience is going to join. I understand that, and it's up to me to not ignore that, but I also want to slide in my messaging where I can. Um, for the most part, I've been doing this long enough. I know I have to get that messaging in upfront and early, otherwise, when it, it won't. You can't work it in naturally. You have to open with it. Sometimes, like I love i absolutely love kelly ripa she genuinely loves animals she genuinely wants to hear she'll argue with Aww, her producer to give me more time mm-hmm. i mean it's <laughs> yeah no she's great and so i know with her i can open my con my my conservation messaging and then we'll have some fun facts and she'll naturally say so what gotcha. else is going on okay. with the species mm-hmm. you know and so that's always a treat uh the um the moment i was on uh, the late late show james corden's show with um Ron Burgundy, uh, that was a taped piece. And so the challenge I have with taped pieces is I can get my conservation message out, yeah. but if the producer afterwards wants to narrow it down by editing, once it airs, it's just a funny segment. Now, I, I am pleased with the fact that uh, there were several times the conservation message was left in there. There were some talking points throughout that fun, goofy Amazing segment that we did get some messaging in there about wildlife and respecting wildlife and the challenges these animals face. Uh, a lot of it didn't get in there, but a lot of it did. So I, I was very pleased with how that segment turned yeah, out as it was, well.
1: It was awesome. I thought, I thought it, cause it is, it, it, it moves pretty quick, yeah. but it, it is fun to be <laughs> engaging too. And people obviously do connect to animals, but Connecting to humor or real life situations, uh, is always a great way to go too. So, and like you said, we just have to keep trying because you never know. There's that one kid that's staying up really late at night, probably my five year old. No, right, well, to watch it. And, <laughs> no, he wasn't up that time, but you know, you know what I'm saying? But you know, it's on YouTube. Right.
2: You know, it's on YouTube. Mm-hmm. It circulates in social media. And that's the other thing too is that, that I look at that James Corden audience. You know, you look at those videos on YouTube and there's millions and millions of, of, of of viewers yes. that are watching his videos. Mm-hmm. And so, and you go down through those comments and there are people going, wow, this zookeepers keeping up with Ron Burgundy. It's amazing. I go into the comments to say, thanks and try and engage with, I will, yeah. I will, you know, <laughs> yeah. I will pick these people off in the comments and start engaging them because that's where my opportunity lies. Some exactly. person who had never heard mm-hmm. of me before, who has no idea who I am and I have no way to reach them has now made it a opportunity for me to reach them and engage. And we can, and all of a sudden they're following me on other social media platforms and now we're having a conversation about, you know, whatever. And that's where the value is. You know, it may be in the moment it's just a, it's a ha ha. sure you got a message up, but no one's listening because they're laughing. But then it's exactly. the follow up. You know, it's that one person in the audience, that one person watching on TV, the person on YouTube, wherever the clip may surface. I'm scouring through those comments because my job is to pick those people out and go, yes, let's talk about animals. Let's talk about conservation. Um, and yeah. that's, that's right well, we is. are in such a,
1: <laughs> a we're so lucky be in a day an age where these daytime or night late night talk shows is the clips will air on like you said either youtube or even on the the home station's uh website and so they can be viewed and viewed again where that's novel when i was growing up that wasn't the case if you didn't uh, if you didn't hit your VHS right, exactly. and record it, it was gone, right? <laughs> so, and I, and I think that, that that definitely does work in our benefit yeah. too. And like you said, then you can engage uh, in real time and answer questions. Uh,
2: I mm-hmm. the yeah, follow up awesome. engagements, mm-hmm. yes.
0: Well, we have uh, two more questions, so getting towards the end, we know we got to let you go. Sure. Um, so, Rick, I always like to ask this of all of our guests, and it's harkens back to when we started doing this podcast and getting different opinions from people from different walks of life, where you have a Sonarto out in Java, you know, working with camera traps, looking for tigers. And then we have Greg Rasmussen doing African painted dogs to, you know, all the researchers and scientists that we've talked to or spokespeople. So this one, i really interested to get your take on it. And that is, do we as a species have a moral obligation to save these endangered species?
2: Yep. Okay, thank you. <laughs> that' easy. Um, you know, we, we can you can definitely deep dive into that, and absolutely we have a moral obligation um, from uh, just the idea that you look at us as a species on this planet, and the the way we have restructured and designed the surface of this planet to meet our needs, um, the fact that in such a short period of time. Uh, as far as the timeline of this planet goes, we have gone from dressing in pelts to uh, changing the temperature inside of our buildings to suit our needs, no matter what the temperature is outside. Uh, we have an amazing potential to do great things, and we have proven that. Uh, when it comes to moral obligations, we have a moral obligation uh, to ourselves, to our families, to our communities, um, and that extends in into the surrounding habitats um, and the animals that we share this planet with uh, from a moral side of it how um, how good is our ability to change the world to suit our needs if in the process we destroy the very thing we are standing on uh, and the living creatures around us what what have we done with ourselves when species like the rhino face extinction, or even tadpoles and frogs face extinction, or trees of certain species face extinction because of what we've done. So yes, our, our moral obligation is there. And you can then take the perspective of a scientific uh, obligation. We know very well in our scientific studies the interconnection that all species have, whether it's a food chain or a food web or whatever cycle of life you want to look at, and to think that one or two going on the wayside to benefit our needs because we don't want to change a little bit, uh, of what we do or how we do it, uh, is certain destruction. And it's not certain destruction of the earth because oh, yeah, the earth be here. will be here until it falls into this, mm-hmm. the, the, until it falls into the sun. It is certain destruction of ourselves. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and we have to be aware that scientifically, uh, we are creating a situation where we will not be able to sustain ourselves. Um, much longer if we keep going down this path. I truly believe that we can and we will change that path. And the last point to, that I want to bring up on this, this line of thought process is uh, I had a conversation with a um, very religious friend of mine, and his point to me, his argument to me was, look, you know, God put us on this planet, and he made this planet for us to enjoy and to use uh, for our needs. And and uh, you know I, I I'm not as well versed in his religion as he is, um, but my counterpoint to that was we are also challenged with being good stewards of what mm-hmm. God has made for us, and so even from a religious aspect you can look at it whether you are strictly in science, strictly in religion, or human moral, or ethics, or even just somewhere in between. There is not a compass anywhere. Moral or otherwise, it doesn't point to the need for conservation and taking good care of our planet.
0: I I will never ask that question again. That's like the most complete perfect answer I've ever heard. Like seriously, (laughs) like doing this for two years. Holy I got smokes. goosebumps. Was it was amazing. beautiful. Wow. Yes. Wow. That is, <laughs> there's the, yeah. the bar has been set to all future okay,
2: guests. Okay. Well, wow. <laughs> I look wow. forward to, so, oh, yeah. was, I look forward to someone uh, reaching that bar and going past that it because that's, uh, that's powerful. That's why we set bars.
1: Yes. Well, and so Rick, you've got to tell us how our listeners, um, and your listeners can find out more of this, more of this amazing and wise, uh, zoo animal conservation education platform that you have, and how can how can we support your work at the San Diego Zoo? And well, elsewhere? certainly.
2: I mean, I'm all over social media at Zookeeper Rick, um, but it's just my voice. It's my thoughts. Uh, yes, I, I take it from the position of spokesperson for the organization, but also my own personal passion for wildlife and conservation is is voiced in there as well. For the organization, um, I strongly encourage visiting the website endextinction.org. Mm-hmm. Uh, that is sort of the first step portal, if you will, into all the conservation stuff we do, and it's always updated and changing, so go back and visit often. And then, of course, uh, we try to be, as we talked about earlier, we need to be where the audience is, we need to be where the eyeballs are, so please uh, search for us on your favorite social media platform. Um, and if you don't have one, if you don't do social media, you only like doing podcasts, then keep listening to podcasts like this that connect you to people like me. Um, go to websites for organizations that do the work. Uh, you can go to our San Diego Zoo website. In all honesty, our, our San Diego Zoo website is geared more towards someone who's going to come visit the zoo. But on there, there are links to our conservation work. Uh, there are links to how you can do conservation work right from your own home with our citizen science projects. Um, so yeah, I think in today's day and age, the, the quickest and easiest way to connect is through websites and social media. Uh, you'll find us there because uh, we have a lot of great stories to share.
1: Oh, wonderful. We will definitely be putting all the links on our show notes and on our social media platforms as well. And as always, we always encourage anybody listening to this podcast. One of the quickest, easiest things you can do that takes a millisecond is share. Share yep. this episode. I'm sure one of your cousins or friends or aunts or uncles probably hasn't heard of Zookeeper Rick. They've most likely heard of the San Diego Zoo, but (laughs) your message and the way that you tell it and the way that you share it and how educated you are and inspiring you are, you're fun to follow. Yeah. I follow you on yeah. social media, and I and I learn a lot all the time, and it's right very on. engaging and education, of course, but also yeah. fun as well. And so, uh, I just try it out and and tell a friend about it because it definitely you you won't be disappointed. That's right. for sure.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And and to that to that point of the need for sharing this information on social media, and, and and you know whether it's a share button or a like or a heart or a comment or just telling somebody about it. I, I sometimes hear, especially with like the rhino conservation stuff, is like, look, it's not happening here. Me sharing it to my high school friends isn't going to do anything. And and the reality is the challenges of wildlife trafficking that rhinos face with horns and everything else. And, um, U.S. is the second largest market for wildlife trafficking and black market items. So yeah, yeah you actually sharing here. here in the United States can raise awareness that that's yeah you know, that little trinket there or that little you know elixir you think is supposed to do something maybe not. You know, maybe do some, make a better choice, mm-hmm. have a thought process about that. And like I said earlier, we have seen the results of campaigns like that making a difference in how uh, money is being spent. And that's really where the challenge is: we have to stop people from wanting to buy these things uh, to stop the, the poaching issue.
1: Yes. No, exactly. Very, very good point. Well, and Rick, before I let you go, I have to ask you one last question. Please do. Are you hiring? No.
0: no. They're not hiring. They're not hiring. <laughs> I
2: looked. That's funny. I was gonna ask I was gonna ask you guys if you need a sidekick for your oh, podcast. Oh yeah.
1: Hey so let's so do, I do think, a little Angie,
2: you just you come you can come take my job. I'll come take yours. We're okay.
1: good. I love everything Rick, about that. I'll just try <laughs> to
0: San Diego. We'll just record from like, you know, La Jolla. Yeah. There you, go. There you right. go. Well,
1: we're always we, we uh I've just had a blast today and we okay. are always okay. looking for extra extra ideas and extra help, especially on uh you know, some of the more challenging topics when we yes. do special episodes on either poaching or uh, uh accredited zoos and things like that. So you are now among us, my friend. Yes. and- Yes. Um, right
2: on. Right on. No, it's great, and I appreciate again. I really appreciate you guys reaching out to me. Uh, no, what you guys do, I, I've listened to your podcast, the, the people you've had on. Uh, it just, it's amazing, and I really am glad and excited to hear you guys are looking at the future, doing more, and and uh, and continue to do what you do because uh, really, again, this this type of media is the way to get this information out there so thank you oh, thank, thank you
1: Rick so
0: much yeah. it's been a pleasure and, and you and guys can't, can't I, I want to preface this you can hire Angie but she can't quit the podcast I will <laughs> I, I will chase oh, her fair down enough. fair enough but bring her from Florida to California bring, bring her to the, the real sunshine state and, oh uh, yes so I was right? quite tickled pink if her and John moved out you guys
1: d- I'm sure you don't have any mosquitoes there right it's nice and nice and dry not
2: many we have some okay. oh. they're much smaller they're much okay. much smaller okay. than in so, Florida so, I tell dry. you what <laughs> <laughs> and oh, there are fewer, well, fewer. Oh my gosh. But it it does sound like John's got a pretty sweet he gig does, out there too. He so does. Uh, that'd be a tough that'd be tough uh, to get oh him yes, away from there. Oh yes. And
1: um I'll definitely am going to set you guys up too so we we would love to have you over at the Santa Fe College Teaching Zoo to inspire the next generation as yeah. you do.
2: Yeah. You know, fun story. I've never been out there. Um, I have been in touch with a few people who uh, have gone through the program and, and it's. I hear it's an excellent program. And whenever I talk about Moorpark, I always try to talk about Santa Fe Community College because obviously Sometimes it's easier for someone to go to Florida versus California or whatever. Mm -hmm. And, and so it's one of those things where I want to make sure they, they both get their due because, uh, yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's a hard business to get into and programs like that are very
1: helpful to get that. And we all, as we all know, it's what, what are the three P's? You need patience, persistence, and Oh, Professionalism. that's that. yeah, that, that's the one that there I clearly is. have the hardest one with.
2: <laughs> yeah. I don't know why I couldn't remember that one.
1: <laughs> but yes, well, oh my gosh, this has been amazing. Thanks we're so going to for Rick. sure going to do again and yes, yeah. thank you for all the work you do. Of course, all the amazing work that San Diego Zoo Global does as a whole. Uh it's a, it's a pleasure to be in your company and we I we definitely look forward to more talks in the future for sure.
0: Yes, thank you. I, you know, hometown zoo, big fan, huge fan, huge fan, and you know, I, I'm definitely coming back to the zoo uh, here soon to, to walk the grounds again. Actually, I'm going to go to the wild animal park next time. But uh, thank you so much, Rick, and and you know, we'll definitely please have you on when you're not so busy again and
2: talk Certainly. about some
0: of the more talk about some of the stuff you're doing and San Diego Zoo Global's doing. But thank you again so much.
2: Yeah, my pleasure. And I do want to say, because I know your podcast goes all over the place, um, as much as we've been focusing on the San Diego Zoo and San Diego Zoo Global and everything we do at the Safari Park, I can't stress enough for your listeners, please, please go support your local zoo. Uh, we all work together. We could not do the work we do in this organization without other zoos around the country working together. Um, odds are animals that are in your local zoo Absolutely. have some connection to us or vice versa. So if you aren't as fortunate as Chris to be able to come down and walk around the safari park on any given day, um, please, please go visit and support your local zoo. We cannot do this work alone. So that's that's. Uh, I'll sign off with that. Thank you guys so much for having me. And uh, I look forward to working with you guys again in the future. Thank, Thank
1: you. you.